Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast where you can bet on the outcome of Kieran Trivia's gambling hearing. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent the last three years working as an FA licensed intermediate here in the UK. My co-host, Rupert Meadows, has written and broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. A brief departure from the Premier League's fixtures this week with the international break and UEFA Nations League taking place, but not a departure from the Premier League itself. Project Big Picture has reared its head and everyone is trying to make sense of, you know, what it represents and, you know, is this a potential revolution to the English game from the top flight down to non-league? Yeah, uh, we'll be, be diving into that shortly to break down exactly what's going on. But before that, let's have a look at how the international scene got on. Yeah, so I think probably the best place to start is the place that we were most focused on and probably a lot of our podcast listeners have been most focused on was, was England's games. And I think England had two very interesting games, one uh, being a friendly, which had no real consequence, and the other being uh, part of the UEFA Nations League, which arguably also had very little <laughs> consequence. Um, yeah. But two sort of games that, that massively contrasted each other. Um, the Wales game... You know, England won 3-0, and it was a really experimental 11. Danny Ings, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, and Connor Cody all had their debut and all scored. Jack Grealish and Saka came in, looked really amazing. It was just a really good time to see sort of all these players who fans of all these various clubs and just general fans in the English game have been crying to have a chance, came in and showed why well they deserved that chance. And then only sort of for it to almost do the opposite with Belgium, where we sort of reverted to a more typical 11, where even though, yes, we did win that game, I would say it was not as entertaining a performance and maybe a bit of a smash and grab in terms of a result. What did you think about England in these two games? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you've presented one side of the um, the Wales game, which is that a bunch of new players got their first caps, which is really good. But I think it also is not a slightly worrying thing, but is something which, which does mean that we have no momentum as a national side. And... All of this chopping and changing means that we go into these games looking pretty stagnant when these are games that matter against Belgium. Um, although, of course, with the caveat that does the Nations League matter? Um, and I do just wonder, you know, Gareth Southgate's been manager for four years now and it's great to see so many players get their debuts under him. But you do just kind of... I personally feel like I want a sense of the ship being righted and we us knowing our starting 11, our strongest starting 11... And I still don't think we're anywhere near that. Yeah, I, th- I think that, yeah, what you're kind of getting at there is like, it's all well and good to play Danny Ings and Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Jack Grealish, but what's the point if they're not going to play long-term? What you want to see from a game like the Wales game, where these players were given a chance, and Sean, when they were given the chance, is for that then to sort of carve out a more permanent place. And granted, these games were very close together, so maybe it was sort of more looking towards rotation, but you would hope that certainly Grealish, certainly Dominic Calvert-Lewin, two players that are on red-hot form right now, uh, would be getting that chance. It is. I mean, I think, you know, people have complained for a long time about the English national side not paying enough attention to on informed players. And I do agree that it's really good and positive for competition um, and just to see what they're like on a different stage that these players are getting chances. But I don't feel like a balance has been met between momentum and new chances. No, I think that's correct. And, it, you know, as an example, if we then turn to look at this England-Belgium game, we sort of stuck with the 3-4-3 and we went with Harry Maguire and Eric Dyer as two members of that back three and Carl Walker as a third. 
Now, Carl Walker, you can kind of make some excuses for because it's not his natural position. He's played there with varying, you know, success. Sometimes it's worked out, sometimes it's not. But Harry Maguire has just been in just the worst form of his life, arguably, over the last few months. And Eric Dyer, I, I am amazed that that man managed to continue getting a game <laughs> at the top level. I don't know how it is that successive managers have deemed him not good enough to be a defensive midfielder and instead decide, because he's like not on the ball enough, and then decided instead to move him back to centre-back, where he, for me, I don't know how he's not classified in the same sort of arena as like a David Luiz type, because he has always got a mistake in him for me. Um, and he certainly did in this game with just a really, really bizarre penalty to give away. It's about 10 minutes it's late with the challenge yeah it's it's a weird one he all he definitely is one of those players that just baffles and you think why do people keep playing him um i kind of get that he's maybe finding a little bit of momentum on the club level because him and jose Mourinho seem to have a pretty good relationship he speaks portuguese um mm. but yeah i i do not understand why you put him anywhere near the starting 11 let alone out of fourth position um but well, you especially know, when you've got so much managers, competition right we don't see the big picture i guess that's true, but especially when you've got so much competition in those places. I mean, obviously, Connor Cody uh, plays in the Wales game and looked fantastic besides his goal, but also knows how to play in about three. You've also got Lewis Dunk, who looks really impressive. A lot of those Brighton lads, although Brighton have had a bit of a shocking, shocking start to the season, but individually last season, you know, Lewis Dunk should be getting a shout in there for me ahead of, you know, Eric Dyer or Harry Maguire in current form. So I just, you hope to see a little bit more rotation in permanent games than, than we currently do. But, I mean, it, it does kind of come down to how much is the Nations League valued? I mean, the other thing about, you know, outside of England's games, we saw a lot of games uh, over the weekend that saw either weakened 11s, certainly Spain fielded a lot of weakened 11s, or sort of younger players getting their first chance, players that aren't usually in the fold, and a lot of games that were low-scoring or just nil-nils. And maybe it's because we've been spoiled by the first four weeks of the Premier League, and I was sort of like, ah, no, seven-goal thrillers, what is this? Um, but we just really saw a lot of nil-nils, one-nils, one-ones, and it just didn't seem like anyone was, you know, the whole idea of UEFA to create this Nations League was, you know, supposed to introduce more competition and, and you know, flair to, to what is normally quite a dull series of, of the football calendar, uh, the international break, and I just don't know that it has done that. Yeah, I completely agree. It's, I, I kind of like it. I do think it's cool that, you know, in theory, we care about these games. And it is fun to watch England take on Belgium rather than the usual, like, we play someone like Wales in a friendly or, you know, a club, a team that is potentially below our standing. I don't want to get arrogant. Um, England haven't won anything for a long time. Um, but, yeah, it, the Nations League doesn't really seem to be doing anything much, but we maybe need to give it a couple more years to see what it's like when nations transition from levels to levels and and how it plays out so uh, i'm willing to give it time um but yeah i do no, find sure. it weird that as you say why didn't Connor cody play against belgium instead of eric dyer surely that's the value in getting these guys to to have games is that you realize who plays well and who doesn't and then you install them into like the, the starting lineup or the you know the 18 on the squad day it's yeah exactly and, and, and certainly the fact that he didn't go for the players on form and went for sort of like the more safe tried and tested option would suggest that, as well as the other managers with different teams, suggest that they don't really view this as that much of a, you know, an important thing. I heard a lot of pundits saying ahead of the Belgium game that this was a must-win game because if we won it, we topped the group and, you know, we were going into the next round if we, if we you know, continued to win at this rate. And I was just like, what does that really represent? I mean, the UEFA Nations League, it has sort of like mean? a backdoor into the Euros, <laughs> but like for a team 
Obviously, every now and again, there are big teams that don't really make it into the Euros. But for most teams, like, for example, England, France, Germany, Spain, are they really going to be looking at this as a viable way to get into the Euros as compared to the usual qualification method? Probably not. I think it's it's not a bad thing if, you know, teams have the chance to play against other big sides and build momentum, as we talked about, and, you know, just have more games playing together as a national team. But... Yeah, I actually think that maybe Gareth Southgate's decisions in the starting eleven indicate that he is taking it seriously because he's not willing to, you know, potentially risk uh, any of these new blood blooded signings. So I yeah, almost yeah, feel that's, like that's another way of looking at certainly. the presence um, of Eric Dyer and Harry Maguire is him just saying like, "I've ticked the box. I got to play the the players that are performing well. Now I can just do my own thing," which is a little bit worrying. It is a little worrying. But um, moving on from England, obviously there were a lot of other games uh, over the weekend. And I just wanted to re- sort of focus in on one particular game, which was France-Ukraine. Uh, not because it was a 7-1, but because it marked Olivier Giroud's 100th appearance for France. Uh, and with it, he got a brace in the day, his 41st and 42nd goals. Uh, and the reason that's sort of stood out to me is I saw a little graphic um, that pointed out that Olivier Giroud's scoring record in his first 100 games is really, really good. He's in the company, sort of quite close to Lionel Messi, who got 46 goals in his first 100 games, Thierry Henry and Wayne Rooney, who got 44 goals in their first 100 international games, and better, actually, than Cristiano Ronaldo, who's currently one of the best international goal scorers around, who got 37 international goals in his first 100 games. And I think, you know, just looking at Giroud, it's not bad for a player who started playing professionally when he was 21. And... You know, again, also for a player who, I think we've spoken about this recently, didn't score in the World Cup at all, but was a really important part of that French team. Is he maybe sort of having almost like a a, a fine wine moment where he's aging and he's getting even better? Because certainly I think he's uh, he's really moulded into his role at Chelsea as that as that super sub role. Yeah, I think, I think he is aging like a fine wine in the sense that he knows his role in that France team and he does it really well and he's really impactful in it essentially he's just a really solid number nine that can stabilize a bunch of incredibly creative midfielders behind him um so yeah i think anyone that dismisses him as not a star quote-unquote or not an exciting player i think is really missing the point which is these players like roberto firmino don't get a lot of goals necessarily but are integral to the team and on top of that Giroud has really good positioning and does get a lot of goals, as you can see by the fact that he's in that company in his top 100 games. He's second mm. only behind Thierry Henry in terms of goals scored for the France national team. He's above like legends of the game like Michel Platini, David Trezeguet, Griezmann, Zidane. Um, so, you know, yeah, he's not to be underestimated at all. It's funny to think about it and, and, you know, probably a move that never really would have happened, although we have seen transfers between these two clubs, because he played at Arsenal, where I think he was kind of just the wrong player for the wrong time. When he played for Arsenal, they needed someone a bit mobile up front. Ozil was still in his prime and pinging forwards through balls that he was just a bit too slow to get to. And then he's come to Chelsea in a system that fits him a bit more, and he's able to sort of do that. But I was looking at him play over the weekend, and certainly over the last uh, half of last season, and thinking, he's the kind of player, if I might just put my little manager cap on for a moment here, that would fit amazingly at Man United if they hadn't got Edinson Cavani I could so see him just absolutely doing a job at Man United just thinking about the way that he operates with France and operated with them at the World Cup sort of enabling as you said like attacking midfielders and mobile wingers by sort of you know using his huge frame and strength to hold the ball up and play the ball forward just imagining him sort of in the spearhead of a a winging thing with um, 
you know, Anthony Martial and Marcus Rashford or, or Rashford and Greenwood, just the same way, you know, obviously with lesser players that we saw with uh, um, uh, Mbappe and Griezmann would just be a really interesting thing for me. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and, you know, Arsenal fans will surely attest that he has, he loves a good flick on and he's really good at kind of intricate build-up play and, and linking with second strikers. So, absolutely. Um, I completely agree. I think someone like Giroud would have been a really savvy signing and then you could have got a big money signing or a big name signing elsewhere center back wink wink yeah well yeah exactly and and you know compared to someone like Cavani obviously we haven't seen him play a minute for United yet so he might hit the ground running but what the advantage he does have over Cavani is he has Premier League experience which as we've seen on so often uh so many occasions is is often invaluable um sure does uh, I also but think just, he's a, he's better at build build up play and um, connecting. I think Cavani is a more proactive striker, but Giroud definitely has a lot to offer. Yeah, a hundred percent, and I think plugs into the system that United already have so well. Um, he or, definitely or, or would, would do. Potentially. But yeah, I um, my mind also went to the France seven Ukraine one when you talked about no seven goal thrillers. I mean, we had an eight goal thriller. I think well, yeah, the, a or, too although high that was these days. That that was an international. Uh, uh, that was a friendly. This that was prior to the uh, the Nations League. Oh, you just talking about the Nations League. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, but um, but so speaking of the the Nations League and international, uh, you know, friendlies in general, just wanted to sort of have a bit of a broader discussion with you about it. Should we have even had an international break with the current circumstances? I mean, obviously at the moment the the coronavirus laws are are so you know put in place to make sure that people can't spread it and certainly if we look at very very early on all the way back in i think it was february or march one of the first things that people could look at bringing coronavirus into the uk was when atletico madrid played away at liverpool and four thousand fans came over from madrid to liverpool uh, and similarly when arsenal played against olympiacos Mikel arteta got coronavirus during that game um is it really intelligent at all at the moment that we have all these players coming from different leagues and different countries and all this staff coming together into one squad and then moving into other countries sometimes to play the games i mean already we've got a few examples in the premier league um you know uh kieran tierney has had to self-isolate because he's had to train with scotland and sure. Stuart armstrong who also plays in the premier league tested positive for it Thiago Tiago alcantara test positive cristiano ronaldo tested positive just earlier today, today yeah. and it, it really begs the question, if arguably the game's biggest star is being put at risk by this, how can anyone else be safe? I understand that they're getting tested frequently, and I understand that as far as coronavirus goes, very highly trained athletes are probably the least at risk of fatality. But it's still not a good look, especially when you think about the places that footballers are going. They're already travelling a lot for work. So why is exposing footballers to more risk a good idea for essentially a meaningless competition? Yeah, it's not. And I think the the main problem is that with all of this, you can take as many precautions as you like, but you're only as safe as your least safe person in the squad or in the dressing room. And, you know, people haven't been behaving very well during lockdown. And I don't want to say that footballers as a, as a general average are like more prone to dumb behavior than the average person, but I definitely do want to say that. And we've got some really high profile examples of that on international break, like with um, Mason Greenwood and Phil Foden and like Tammy Abraham, his birthday party that we talked about last week. Um, So yeah, I think that I wouldn't have any problem with it if there were really rigid structures in place, making sure that all players were isolating effectively, but there clearly aren't because Tammy Abraham wasn't even dropped from club or country 
as a result. The only, the only thing I would push back against that um, slightly is just that uh, I don't think that's a unique to footballers scenario because I think uh, I think what that what that's got more to do with than football is just large amounts of money and fame. I think you find the same with like pretty much like Kanye West is flying around the world at the moment. I think if you give anyone, especially young players who are between the ages of like, I mean, to be fair, eighteen and thirty, really, if you give someone that amount of money and fame, they basically tell them they're a god. I defy you not to act. Like and then a bit tell of a them moron. they can't go out and like see their mates. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. After after years and years of being like, you can do whatever you want because you are God-made flesh, and then suddenly someone's like, hey, you know, there are rules now. Like, really? Is that ever going to work? So... Yeah, absolutely. So, I know, I completely agree with you. Um, and as a result, I don't think that we probably should have had an international break because Ronaldo getting coronavirus is obviously not good for the sport. And yes, everyone's healthy, but you can get severe complications with coronavirus even if you are healthy so yeah i think it's it's a little bit foolhardy and they should probably tighten up at least the rules around managing the players yeah i mean that's the thing it just seems so bizarre to me and the fact that obviously it could affect club football and it could affect yeah certainly as you said even if someone doesn't die from coronavirus it can you know affect your athleticism it can affect all sorts of things you know short of 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 being fatal uh so I, i just don't know why there's been this massive risk taken on just for international friendlies, which literally mean nothing, and the UEFA Nations League, which nominally means nothing as far as I'm concerned. I mean, maybe some clubs are viewing it as a really important tournament, but that's not the impression I get from from what we saw. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was a really weird one for me that after all this, you know, being careful and make sure we have all this regulation and that sort of restriction, we just went, hey, everyone, join up and go to a different country together. Um, yeah, it's, kind, it's a weird kind of one, um, for sure, and... I think probably in the coming days we might see more and more high-profile players and managers coming out and saying I've got it and and that could well affect decision-making going forward in terms of like European competition and international competition. But If uh, it forces us into a second Premier League break that fans will have every right to be fuming. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, And if... It's kind of like, you know when players injure themselves in a friendly like mm. playing some sort of in maybe in like America or Asia or something and you just think did they need to do that they really yeah. didn't and now it's impacting their career and their club and yeah, yeah. and this isn't even them making that decision it's their, their respect of their face but enough exactly. doom and gloom shall we move well, into a quick guessing game before our next uh our next little, little chat let's do it I think it's so my I... turn this week Exactly. So I'm hoping that uh, you'll do better than last time, although I may have gone for one that seems a little bit harder. Um, okay. you'll de- it'll, it'll depend. It's one of those that you'll either click with it straight away. Uh, so to the listeners as well, um, good luck listening to this one. So, so just to game. be clear, you gave me the easiest possible one pretty much <laughs> last time and I didn't get it. You didn't get it. <laughs> Is, and you're making it harder now? Is that that's what you're saying? Well, I mean, this one, I don't know if it's hard or do easy. This. It's, it's very this. specific. I'm ready. I'm ready for the challenge. First one, big clue. I only played for one club in my entire career. Okay, I mean, that definitely narrows it down. Only a couple of players these days. I mean, it could be a player from a long time ago, but certainly, you know, if you think about one club players, there's only a couple that instantly come to mind. We're talking about Um, players in the last 20 years, right? Could be. (laughs) I mean, we didn't set this rule, but it feels like it should at least have been an unwritten, unofficial rule. Well, it's it's any player that you have a reasonable, you know, chance of knowing. Sure. Like, I don't think it'd be unfair to say, for example, Bobby Charlton. Uh, okay, so so that's that's clue number one. I only played for one club in my entire career. Uh, second clue is amongst the media of my country, 
I was nicknamed both the Gladiator and the Big Baby. Now, not necessarily... The Gladiator and the Big Baby. Yeah, the two nicknames... This, this player, might like several players, had, had a lot of nicknames, but two of the most common ones in the media of their country. So that could be this country, could be another country. I could be using the translated nicknames, but both of them are quite famously associated with this player, uh, were The Gladiator, which is one end of the spectrum, and The Big Baby, which is on the other end of the spectrum. Do you know what? The first player that popped into my mind was Diego Costa. <laughs> well, he does embody both of those quite well, to be fair. Um... Unless, but I, I'm, okay. I'm, are, you, are you locking that in before the next, uh, yeah, the next I'm, clue? I'm ready for clue number three. Okay, clue, clue number three is I am the oldest person to have scored in the Champions League. Uh, and there is there is a fourth kind of clue that I could give you if you're Just struggling flat quite a bit out, with that. The oldest person still alive that has scored in the Champions League. No, at the time of scoring, he was the oldest person to have scored in the in the. Champions League. So on the day that he scored, he was an age that is still the oldest that anyone has been to score. Okay, okay, okay. So it's, okay. it's, it's not like someone who's like 90 and, and scored in the Champions League way, way back in the day. It's just someone who... Yeah, okay, that's that's where my mind went. Um, yeah. Okay, that's cool. Go on. Uh, I've got... Well, so I've got a fourth hint. Uh, it might help you out. It might not. If, if, if you're struggling, I can give it to you. Do, do you want it now or would you like it later on with your guess? I've got an idea of who it could be. Okay, so do you want to wait until you guess to get the hint, or will you like it now? Let's let's get the let's. Do you know what? I'll guess if I get it wrong. Fourth clue, and I get a second guess. Sound good? All right. Sure. Is it Paolo Maldini? Oh, it's it's not. I'm afraid. It's not. It's not. But it, but again, much like last or a couple of weeks ago, when you were sort of dancing around the player I, I, I was had in mind. You're not a million miles away. Okay, okay. Give me, give me the fourth clue, and then we'll move on and return to it. Well, the fourth, the fourth clue is you're still on the right. The fourth clue is this player. I have won a World Cup. He's won a World Cup. Mm-hmm. So it's, he's won a World a he, Cup. Right? It is a he. Yeah. Okay. He's won a World Cup. He's played for one club in his entire career. Amongst the media of his country, he was nicknamed the Gladiator and the Big Baby. And he is the oldest person to have scored in the Champions League. Oh, it's going to be someone like Carlos Puyol. Uh, okay. Um, let's have a think about this. One club. The you, you can have to use this trivia to lock in your guess, by the way. We can move okay, into the next Okay, yeah, yeah that's cool. Let's, let's, let's roll on to the next topic. Great. So next, what we're going to be talking about, as Rupert alluded to in our uh, introduction, uh, is Project Big Picture. And Project Big Picture is the latest in, you know, one of huge sort of football changes that a lot of people are sort of coming to terms with. And there's been a lot of stories that have sort of not very well described. And people are hearing this and that and only knowing the headlines. So we're just going to do a quick breakdown of what it is and then sort of talk about why it's good, why it's bad, whether it's, you know, something that's healthy for the league. Um, So just getting us off, what is Project Big Picture? and why is it coming out now um project big picture is it's a massive shift in the terms of how revenue streams in english football operate uh it looks to increase the share afforded to the efl which is the english football league so that's the championship league one and league two reduce the cost of away support so there's a proposal to cap away tickets at 20 pounds uh, and provide funding to both the women's mm-hmm. game and national league football so that's the league uh, below uh, league two as well as national leagues north and south which is uh, the sixth step 
It would also represent a significant administrative change in terms of both the league format and responsibilities. Two of the major changes would be a reduction in size of the Premier League from 20 teams to 18, like it is in the Bundesliga, as well as a change to the promotion and relegation processes between the top flight and the championship. Yeah, so in order to facilitate the 18-team reduction, we would see next season four teams go down from the Premiership and two teams come up from the Championship. And in following seasons, we would see two teams immediately relegated and then the 16th place, which would be the third last in this 18-team system, would enter actually the playoffs. So the Championship playoffs would feature this person sort of playing for their right to stay in the Premier League, which I think actually sounds quite fun. Um, But those are sort of the just the administrative changes. Aside from that, we've got um, a huge amount of money being dedicated towards the EFL. So we have uh, $250 immediately presented to the EFL, as well as a cumulative $100 to the FA. That's in order to cover losses and support investment to the women's game. I think the figure being quoted is about £58 million invested into the women's game. Uh, The National League grassroots football will also be receiving investment. And most interestingly, in the long term, the Premier League clubs would reduce their share of distributable revenue. At the moment, Premier League clubs receive distributable revenue from the English game at 92% and they would reduce that to 75%, which would guarantee 25% to EFL clubs. Um, which, just to distill that into a sort of a more more real figure, for teams in the Championship, each club would raise their income by £15.5 million a season, League 1 clubs would increase their income by £3.5 million a season, and League 2 clubs would increase their income by £2.3 million a season. Um, and the reason this is so attractive at the moment, and arguably part of the reason why it's been quote-unquote leaked right now, although we'll get into that in a bit, is because uh, there's been an economic crisis in the EFL at the moment. Um, sure. You know, the coronavirus pandemic has meant that there has been no fans coming to games, there has been a massive reduction in money coming into the game, and for a club like Man City or Liverpool or Chelsea... That's not the end of the world. It's certainly seen a lot of these clubs have to cut back and furlough their staff, but these clubs will still end up, you know, running. Whereas a lot of the EFL clubs are in massive, massive crisis. League One bosses and League Two bosses have been saying that it's a matter of weeks till the clubs collapse. And so this represents, you know, kind of a lifeline potentially for these EFL clubs. It definitely does, but it also means that these clubs aren't operating in their best long-term interests. They look at, you know, this package offer and say, these guys have agreed on actual numbers of what they're going to do to support us. You know, the FA has talked about it, the Premier League has talked about it, but hasn't made any concrete distinctions. And we need money now. We need this. And that's why the chairman of the EFL has come out and supported it. Um, But I don't think that it's dealing in good faith because they are not in a position of, of like, they're not in a good bargaining position at all. So I think they just want something that will help them, which they need Mm. and should be done. But all of this stuff that comes attached to that, I don't think is is worth it for them. Yeah, so, so this goes to sort of one of the more murky sides that more casual fans might not be so aware of. One thing that came out in the wake of this, uh, you know, quote-unquote leak uh, since Sunday is that uh, quite recently the EFL had been offered £375 million in exchange for a 20% stake by an American investment firm that the EFL as an organisation hadn't presented towards the clubs in the EFL and instead had turned down point-blank. As it now comes out that Rick Parry, who is the chairman of the EFL and a former CEO of the Premier League, has been in talks with Liverpool and Man United as the principal dealers for the last three years, it starts to look a little bit murkier and a little bit more cynical. Um, 
And if the question is, well, why would these clubs do this? Are they doing it just for, you know, the reduction to, to 18 teams, as well as, you know, the axing of the Carabao Cup and the, and the Community Shield? There's actually a lot more at stake for these, these larger clubs. Um, one of the larger things is that at the moment, any major change to Premier League rules, this change included, by the way, requires 14 votes. So every single club in the Premier League gets one vote and it needs 14 in order to carry it. The current change that is being proposed by principally Manchester United and Liverpool, although it has been suggested that either Chelsea or Spurs are in bed with this deal as well, and the positions of Man City and Arsenal are as yet uh, unclear, are looking to create a voting system whereby only nine teams would have a vote in Premier League rule changes. This being the top six as we know it today, as well as the other three members that have been the longest serving in the Premier League, those being Everton, West Ham and Southampton. So it's kind of obvious to see why a lot of clubs, especially the other Premier League clubs outside of this group, are sort of have the hairs on the back of their neck raised because it's kind of, it looks like a power grab, basically, uh, disguised as sort of an amnesty package especially if this other amnesty package has been concealed by the chairman of the EFL to sort of go, ah, we'll help everyone out. But in exchange, we're throwing a coup. Um, what do you think, Reeves, about, you know, what this could mean for the future of the game? Yeah, I mean, as you say, this this would create a complete oligopoly uh, of the big six clubs, um, including the three longest standing ones, um, having pretty much total control over... Uh, the future of the Premier League and how it changes. And that makes me feel really nervous. Um, and if you look at the other parts of it, like the rescue package and like um, the away tickets being capped at £20, it's clearly just such a ploy to try and get people on side and supporting it so that they can slip through under the radar the other parts of the bill um, that would just completely shift um, the power dynamics of the Premier League. And the, the power dynamics of the Premier League at the moment are such that clubs get more equal um, money from their involvement and their TV rights uh, way more than Spain or Germany or Italy or France, for example. Mm. And as a result, the Premier League is so competitive. And, yeah, and that's the what worry is, from my perspective, that this money that is being promised to the EFL clubs on top of the... Um, the rescue package, like the yeah. initial 250 million uh, revenues, those extra percentages will effectively create a crutch by which the Premier League will be obligated to support the rest of English football. And that will change in time. And, you know, these big clubs having control over new regulations will mean that that will go away. I would imagine in the next 20, 30 years and they'll just be left with absolutely nothing. And this is just, it's, it's the same thing as creating a European league. It's the same thing as really any sort of suggestion that big clubs should have more power than they already do. Mm -hmm. It just completely changes what is good about English football. I agree with that, broadly speaking. I think that part of what, you know, and, and maybe the biggest thing that makes the Premier League, for my money, the most entertaining league in the world is that we can have these massive upsets, like, for example, Villa coming and putting seven past the champions or, you know, West Brom scoring three against Chelsea in the first half before Chelsea have to, you know, mount a comeback. And that's what makes the league so fantastically entertaining. 
Um, and I do think as well that it, you know, on the surface of it, you can look at it, and certainly the way that the EFL clubs have received it, because they're in no position to be turning down financial assistance, is like, this is a godsend, this is really generous, this is sort of the clubs all coming together in the name of football to help out. But actually, if you just start to scratch beneath the surface a little bit, it looks more and more like this is just, it, there's no other word for it other than hush money. It's basically just money to sort of rush through this through this, this way to get loads and loads of power for the top clubs. What I would say, just in terms of, you know, playing devil's advocate, do you think that there's any case for the larger clubs to have more of a say? I think that anyone would agree that them having a total say in terms of them then being nine voters and the other 11 clubs not having any say is just ridiculous. But do you think that there is a case for certainly the big six clubs to say, well, listen, we generate the majority of the revenue and the interest in this league. Most people, if they're not, you know, Premier League fans, they tune in to watch, say, Chelsea versus Man United, they don't really tune in to watch Burnley versus Sheffield, therefore we should have more sway than these other clubs. Do you think that's fair? Or do you think that's just missing the point? So the first thing I would say is, yes, it's down to nine clubs. What we maybe didn't mention was that in order to get a rule passed, six of those clubs would need to support a change in legislation. So yeah. effectively, the, the top six clubs in English football could dictate changes for the entire Premier League. If they mm. wanted to. And if they agreed on something, such as the, the Super League, for example, is something that's been floating around for the last few years. Exactly. Um, the other thing I would say is that the top six clubs are all foreign controlled um, mm -hmm. by, you know, people in Russia, people in the Middle East. And personally, I just I get quite nervous about, you know, these these large, often not faceless or nameless, but responsibilityless. Mm. Um, and often mysterious powerful backers dictating the Premier League processes I think that way spells real danger yeah and I think that's, that's a very good point you made there because I think a lot of people will look at it and go well you know the top six can't really run away with it because you've got these three other teams and Everton has certainly always looked towards as a really you know community faced club um, you know West Ham have their ups and downs being run by the Dildo Brothers but you know I think people think that maybe they'd be a counterweight, but you are right. If the top six could agree on something together and sort of form a cartel within that nine, they could just put put a rule, pass it, pass it, pass it, and make as many changes as they want. Uh, and certainly if it comes down to a profit margin, you wouldn't necessarily have the greatest faith the owners of clubs like, you know, the Mansours, Stan Kroenke, Fenway Sports Group will be acting in the best interest of the English fans ahead of what made the biggest margins. Yeah, absolutely not. And I also think that, um, just let, tell me if I'm wrong, but if someone like West Ham or Southampton or Everton gets relegated, then they get replaced by the second longest standing club, right? Uh, at present, yeah. If they got relegated from the Premier League, they would have their place replaced, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's nothing to suggest that Everton or West Ham or Southampton would keep them all in check because we don't know if they're going to get relegated. I mean... I'm probably wrong, but I predicted West Ham to come 20th this year. They don't look mm. like that, but, you know, they could get relegated any time. And uh, I think it's, yeah, the, the big six would control everything at that point. Um, West, and, exactly. West Ham being in there is kind of like Ukraine being at the UN with Russia having a seat right behind them. <laughs> like, we're a voice of our own. And the big six is like, no, you aren't. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's just some, it's the timing of it as well is so cynical with... Mm these lower tier clubs clamoring for greater support and also a large um you know growing feeling of dissent among uh, fans that want cheaper more affordable 
away day experiences. So Yeah, definitely. And I think this is really important to mention as well, because it's another thing that contributes to the whole sort of like murky... When we talked about Newcastle, for example, and the takeover, one of the most frustrating aspects of it was the lack of transparency. And it's the same here, even though this is not even supposed to have been, you know, released to the public. This has allegedly been leaked. But I think the timing of the leak is so convenient, in tandem with both the £375 million, you know, bid from the American investors for the EFL and also the fact that at the moment we are at this sort of event horizon for so many EFL clubs so many clubs are literal weeks away from collapsing that it almost feels like the leaking as it were was just Rick Parry going oh no I've left this on a desk in the living room hope nobody finds it um because it's just so perfectly timed oh yeah absolutely um I any leaks that you get these days like when the government leaks its new proposed plans and then tentatively sees how people feel about them before implementing them um it's yeah uh, obviously not done by mistake um i think so especially when you consider that this according to the athletic this proposal was meant to hit the premier league as early as april uh that was the plan between again the three major players rick parry liverpool and manchester united uh it was planned to to be you know launched this campaign in april and then of course coronavirus happened and it was sort of set back and set back and set back and it almost seems now like the best way to put it forwards has just been not to almost make it look like a power grab but to sort of let this very generous rewards package sort of glisten in this leaked document and just let that be what the efl clubs focus on because to be fair to the efl clubs I mean, they need it. There are so many people who have sort of spoken out in support of it. Paul Scally, the chairman of, you know, Gillingham, came out and said it was the most attractive solution for the EFL. And he said, look, you know, this is a, a group that, even if you don't like the way they're doing it, are doing something for the EFL. They haven't been the ones, obviously alluding to the Premier League, who have sat around and done nothing for six months to support us. Um, Tom, you know, the Fleetwood Town chairman, Andy Pilly, described it as a fantastic proposal that will save EFL clubs from oblivion because that is what they're facing, just the end. Um, and I think the Premier League have kind of failed here in a lot of ways. They've been allowed, the rug has been pulled from under them, but only because they've allowed it to be. Yeah, and I think the one positive that could come from this is hopefully the Premier League and the FA turn around and go, whoa, we really need to address this and we really need to support these clubs so that they don't have to support something which is not good for them long term. Um, As I said again, I said it before, I'll say it again. These clubs are not operating from a position of strength in terms of bargaining power. They have no choice but to support the one thing that, while it might destroy them in the future, will save them for the next maybe 10 years. Um, So I I don't think that you can take EFL support uh, seriously in terms of how how good it's going to be for them. Well, this is the other thing is that, you know, obviously the very attractive parts of it are the short term injection of 250 million and then more long term, the 25 percent of distributable revenue. But there are also several other changes that they want to implement. For example, they'd like to introduce a salary cap to the championship, League One and League Two. They want these clubs to now you know be compliant with UEFA style FFP regulations. So this would you know potentially mean that clubs like Brentford, for example, or Fulham wouldn't be able to have, you know, big money owners come in and start investing large amounts of money or Sheffield United, for example. Um, if there was a salary cap and, and financial fair play regulations. So we would not see, you know, the emergence of some of these sides that have come in and started investing a lot of money, which, depending on how you stand as a fan, could be better or could be worse. But, you know, from my perspective, I think it's always interesting when new players can join the game. Yeah, agreed. Um, no, I, I don't think... I, I just don't think we can... 
this should be a thing that happens and, and you really hope that the Premier League and the FA can respond well. Yeah, I mean, this, but this is the thing, though. It's like, you know, it's a power struggle between this top six club cabal or at least United Liverpool uh, and, and one of Spurs or Chelsea. The story keeps changing. but and, and the Premier League, but there's not really a good guy and a bad guy on this side. It's kind of just two bad guys slugging it out. Well, yeah, that's that's true. Um, and the difference is that one bad guy at least is offering some help, maybe hindrance in the long term, but at the moment it, it's going to do more for them than the Premier League is doing. Um so, uh, you know, it, it's a very tricky situation and I can understand entirely why if you ran an EFL club or you supported an EFL club or you played for an EFL club, you would be fully behind this, but it could be a bit of a poison chalice. Yeah, very true. Um, um, so, you know, I'm sure we'll be talking about this more in the coming weeks as details come out, things unfold, um, but definitely one to watch and a very sinister move by big clubs yeah no definitely one that we'll be keeping an eye on and i i don't think that we'll have a happy ending to this i think it's going to get continually nastier and nastier there's a lot of money involved there are some big players that are used to getting their own ways and you know in, in this league and i think you yeah. know we we might really see i mean you know rick parry has already spoken about the ability of any club to resign from the the english football league and we might see some resignations even from the top teams because if the top six clubs get together and have their their you know plot foiled, as it were, they might just decide now's the time to you know pack up our bags and, and go and try make a try of this uh, this super league. So it really could be. I heard it described uh, earlier today as potentially the biggest thing to happen to English football since the formation of the Premier League, and I really think that that's what this could represent. Um, you know, at the Not moment, to be it's underestimated sort of, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think at the moment it's being viewed as just very, something very hypothetical, but I think it's it's been leaked on purpose. It's something that the wheels are in motion, and things are going to start moving very quickly from this point. I mean, wheels are definitely in motion. I mean, this is a, at least a three-year plan, as as we talked about. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is the point where they've come public with it, and it's go time. They're already, you know, like four stages into their plan rather than starting from scratch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, shall we move into a little bit of a lengthier settling the score? Because after the international break, we all need a quick refresher on the Premier League. Uh, and uh, all the teams and how they're going to do. But before we do, uh, shall we get into uh, Utah's trivia and wrapping up guessing game? Yeah, let's do it. Let's uh, let's do guessing game first. Um, yep. So, so just a reminder for the listeners of the four clues that Rupert had uh, and the guess that he made. The clues were: I only played for one club in my entire career. Amongst the media of my country, I was nicknamed both the Gladiator and the Big Baby. I am the oldest person to have scored in the Champions League, and I've won a World Cup. And Rupert's first guess, which was incorrect, but close in a sense, was Paolo Maldini. Yeah, I'm interested to hear why that was close but wrong um, when, it, when it gets revealed. Mm -hmm. I... It's tricky because we talk about it and then we go away and I'm just focusing on what we're talking about rather than thinking about it very much. Yeah. I've got a couple of ideas. Um, one, obviously... Well, you the get World a question. Cup. Sorry? You get a question, so... I get a question. Yeah, as I remember last week, you got a question. So you, if you know, if you yeah. need to filter through... Last week, I've, last time I've got to say you wasted your question with is he European. You've got to go for something more more specific. Like, yeah, did he play yeah, in X okay. League or something, I think. Is Is he Italian? He is Italian. Oh, okay. Um, so add that to the uh, 
the fats you've already got and see. Is it, is you know, it Francesco Totti? It is indeed Francesco Totti. Oh, glory. <laughs> <laughs> I thought when you said, is he Italian? I was like, he, I think he's got it now. Yeah, no, Francesco Totti, of course, played for one club his entire career, that being Roma. He uh, was known, amongst other things, as the gladiator because he was in Rome uh, and fought for the club every day. And the big baby, which I thought was weirdly disrespectful to a guy who they all loved, just like a the prophet. I don't know why he had that nickname either. Um, he was the oldest person, and still is the oldest person, to have scored in the Champions League at 38 years and 59 days old. Uh, and of course, won the World Cup with Italy in 2006. Mm. What a career he had. Um, some some unbelievable goals he scored. He's got mm. this wonderful chip that he takes from outside the box that if people haven't seen it, go away, get on YouTube, look it up. Well, I was hoping you would get that one because as I recall when we were younger, you had, a, you had an old Francesco Totti Roma shirt. Yeah, I, I'm a big Totti fan and I do like the series, yeah, which is, you know, I guess home of the one club player or was for so long. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was him or, I mean, I guess it could have been someone like Franco Baresi, but... I, I was going to get so annoyed if you didn't get it, because last week when you were going sort of like Lasana Diara and, and Marseille Desai, and I was like, oh, you're so close to Nicholas Anelka, you don't even know it. And then this, this week when you were like Paolo Maldini, I was like, oh, this is so... Poor guy. Yeah, my other, my other guess was going to be um, Carlos Puyol. Yeah, I mean, another good guess, to be fair. Um, he he would have satisfied most of those conditions as well. But uh, uh, cool, right? Yes, glory. Okay, we got there in the end, um, and I hope that <laughs> listeners at home were a little quicker on the uptake than me. Um, if not, better luck next time. Yeah, Moving exactly. on to useless trivia. Um, would you like to go first? Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go. Uh, so, as some may know, Erling Haaland, who is all the rage today, and everyone thinks he's going to be the the grand successor to Messi and Ronaldo. It's going to be Mbappe and Haaland. But he was born here in England. He was born in Yorkshire because his father, Alfing Haaland, was playing for Leeds at the time. Uh, and when he scored a hat-trick against Romania during the international break over the weekend, it is now the case that more Yorkshiremen have scored hat-tricks for Norway than have for England in the last 62 years. The last Yorkshire hat-trick for England, of course, came courtesy of Tommy Taylor in 1957. Of course, yeah. Wow, okay. So, that's So one to nothing, is that? Yes, so that's in the last 62 years, one Yorkshire hat-trick for Norway, no Norway hat-tricks for England. Well, there you go. Um, that's a yeah, that's a pretty funny one, isn't it? I didn't know Haaland was born in England. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. I and know was a... mentioned in the Belgium game that I think Kevin De Bruyne was born in England and could have maybe played for England as well. But that's always to... the classic thing. We try and lay claim to. Do you remember when Adnan Yanisai had that game against Sunderland, and all of a sudden, every single Man United in England fan was like suddenly an expert on immigration law. <laughs> I was like, if he lives <laughs> hey, there for five years, he could naturalize. To be fair, I mean, we, we do do it a lot. I guess, what, what are some early... Declan Rice. Um, yep, yeah, Declan know, Rice played, didn't about to... Played for Ireland under um, 21, under 18 kind of levels. I'm not sure exactly when, but... Um, yeah, we definitely steal a lot of players from different countries. So, I mean, the main one... Not the main one, but a big one is Nigeria. Um, a lot of English players could also uh, be eligible to play for Nigeria. Uh, Raheem Sterling could play for Jamaica. Um I think uh, actually today it was, uh, I might be getting this wrong as to the player, I think it was Aaron Wambasaka uh, said he was going to represent Dr. Congo instead of uh, instead of England. Yeah, which is, I mean, on one sense, I'm, 
it's always nice when players stick to their roots and if they do have strong emotional connections to another country that they follow that country rather than doing it for the sake of their career um yeah but it also does sadly sometimes feel like quite a not a political decision but just one that like i want to get the most game time do i think i'm going to get to play for england maybe no i'll go back and play for my old yeah it, it works both ways though doesn't it I and mean, we saw that obviously as well again with uh adama Traore deciding to go for spain instead of mali you could see why he might go for mali and get more game time but if he wants to win uh you know an international trophy like a euros or a world cup i mean he has no chance of winning the euros at mali but <laughs> you know the equivalent um you know if he wants to win a massive major trophy he probably has a better chance at spain so also just to clarify that Dr. Congo is a joke before we have any Congolese people email in and say like you mispronounced it I'll just call it Dr. Congo is a joke oh dear um, but uh, yeah that's a, that's a nice little um, little statistic there my um, I've often wondered why um, you know why football is called why American football is called football and um, why football is also called football Um so apparently, all sports called football are called such, not because the players have to kick the ball, uh, but because they are played on foot by the peasantry rather than on horseback like the quote-unquote proper aristocratic sports of the day. So if anyone complains that American football should not be called football, they've got to get back to their uh, roots of is that uh, that's really interesting, actually? Because I, I suppose when you say it like that, it makes sense in terms of like you know the verbiage of, of of antiquity. But the fact that it's called football because it's played on foot is is really interesting. Well, I guess just because you know things like polo aren't exactly like popular anymore, um, mm. at least in Europe. I know it's really popular in like some parts of South America, but it's not like we have that competition between equestrian sports and things like football. Um, <laughs> You know, they're just not on the same level anymore. Whereas not it very really. much used to be, you know, I guess, like high society sports and low society sports, but no more. Yeah, no, that, that, that's really interesting. Did not know that, uh, but it is definitely one that I will be stealing for myself to tell over the next few pints I have down at the pub. Hey man, it's all yours and it's, it's uh, yeah, I give it to you as an offering. And I, and I encourage all of our listeners to do much the same with that and any useless trivia. <laughs> Steal it for yourself, tell it to your friends at the pub. There you go. We've had a nice uh, friendly discussion. Let's get into some rivalry. Let's okay. talk about settling, settling the score. Settling the score. A bit of head-to-head action. Um, so, our first game of the game week. God, it starts red hot with the most hotly anticipated game of the season so far, I might argue. Everton and Liverpool. I mean, whew, this is going to be a big one. It's going to be really spicy, and I, for one, cannot wait. How do you see it playing out? <sighs> Obviously... It's tough because they're just such both high-scoring clubs at the moment. Typically, though, Everton-Liverpool is defined by like a nil-nil or a one-one. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm going to go for three-two to Everton. Interesting. So I've gone for a very similar result because I agree with your assessment that it's often defined by the two sides battling out to, to an even measure. Uh, I think it's going to be 2-2. I'm going to take the 0-0 or 1-1 they often share and upgrade that to reflect the high-scoring nature of the two sides this season. Uh, I think, you know, you could look at it and go Liverpool have lost to Villa most recently. Everton are absolutely flying with their form. But as we've discussed in recent episodes, Derby's kind of take on a life of their own and are almost sort of played in a vacuum of, of, of away from form. So I, I would say 2-2 here. I think it's going to be a really you know hard-fought yeah, game. I, 
I think it's a good one. I very, very almost chose 2-2. And I just felt like I want to back Everton. And I mm-hmm. like what Carlo Ancelotti's doing. And that's also kind of maybe like the result that I want to happen. Which I think if I, if I was... Uh, if I was to guess exactly what's going to happen, I think it's going to be Everton 2-1 in like the 84th minute and Mane is going to get quite a late goal to, to bring it to 2-2. And all the Everton fans at home are going to be really excited that they're going to best their, their crosstown rivals finally and it's going to it's going to end up being a 2-2 uh, with the points shared, I think. There you go. You heard it here first. Uh, moving on to Chelsea-Southampton, which is the 3 o'clock kickoff. Um, yeah. What have you gone for here, my friend? Well, so I think, again, this is a, a game that merits a little bit of, you know, justification. Because I think Chelsea have really struggled to find identity so far this season. Um, I think a lot of that is down to the fact that a lot of their big players have either been out with injury, you look at Pulisic, uh, or they've just been new arrivals that are taking time to settle in. So Havertz and Werner are the, the obvious candidates there. Um you know, 4 0 against Palace was their last game. I think that belied the game of football that they played. Uh, mm-hmm. They had a lot of struggle getting into gear. And I think a huge component of this game, looking at that Crystal Palace game, is going to be whether Ben Chilwell is fit for this game because he's come out of the England squad with an injury. Whether it's a knock or something a little bit more serious it remains to be seen. But I think they look like a much, much, much better side with him there. Obviously, he starred in that game. But just in general, even if he's one of the, you know, bit part players, he's going to massively boost the team's performance. Um, I have gone here for a 3-1 just because I think that Southampton also have been similarly hot and cold but they need a really hot day to take on Chelsea at the bridge uh, I think Chelsea 3 Southampton 1 yeah fair enough um, I've gone similar I've gone for 2-1 I think it's going to be a little bit closer than that um, I think that Southampton will think that they can maybe try and get something from this game and they'll 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 bring the fight uh, yeah 2 under me Interesting. Okay. Uh, next, we have Leicester Aston Villa, which is maybe the hardest one to call because it's the most form dependent game of the weekend. Um, you've got Villa on the one hand who have absolutely flown out of the gates. Uh, you know, obviously, most recent result 7 2 against Liverpool, which is just the craziest result we might see all season. Aside from that, they've won their other two games. They've looked really, really solid with the additions that they've made, and they just look like they're playing with all the confidence in the world. And then they're playing against Leicester, who. I mean, how do you put a pin on a team that beats Man City one week and loses to West Ham the next, both in just spectacular fashion? Um, yeah. so, so I think it's really difficult. Um, I do think that Villa, what they've done now is they've kind of given themselves the sort of reverse Sheffield effect or whatever. They, they've now sort of almost done too well against Liverpool, where I don't think they're going to be able to catch Leicester with their trousers down because Leicester are going to be going, oh, Villa are a bit of a threat here. Let's make sure we prepare for this game properly. Let's have a look. Let's... Make sure that we take them with all our all, all guns blazing. Um, so I think based on that, it's going to be a one-one draw. Interesting. Um, I think that, like you, I think Leicester are going to take this game really seriously. I think Aston Villa are going to come out the gates fighting and looking really strong, but Leicester are going to have too much in the tank for them and are going to run away with it three-one. Three-one. Yeah, I mean, I could see that as well. It's it's kind of difficult to for both of these sides to to take the better of them because as as we've already said, Leicester have been here and there, and Villa is it. You know, is it just an amazing start with a lot of confidence? Can it continue? You already know that centre backs are going to be looking at Ollie Watkins and going, "Now we know you're a threat. You're not getting away from us." Um, but will that be enough when they've also got Ross Barkley, who looked like he's on great form, and Jack Grealish as well? Um, we'll see. We'll see. Three, you reckon? I'm saying one-one. Uh, next, we have got Newcastle Manchester United, which is another game that is just the fortunes of each side have been quite interesting. I think Newcastle, aside from what was the then shock loss to Brighton, we said three 0 was quite a shock loss. 
is maybe looking less like a shot loss now because Brighton have quietly been putting together quite a few good performances. And I think Newcastle, aside from that loss, have also been putting together quite a, you know, quietly having a solid start to the season. Um, and United, on the other hand, have just bounced from nightmare to nightmare to nightmare. Uh, you know, they've, they're lucky to get the points that they've had. Uh, I can see Edinson Cavani having an impact in this game. I do think that, you know, sometimes players who come from other leagues can struggle and he is an older guy, but I do think that he's played at the top level and around enough that he probably will hit the ground running, especially with a system that's going to emphasise him as, as the lead goal scorer. Uh, but I don't think he'll have enough of an impact to work against the likes of Alisson Maximan and Callum Wilson exploiting the weaknesses of United backline. Um, in my mm. mind's eye, I'm just seeing Harry Maguire on the floor pulling Callum Wilson's shirt, San Maximan absolutely twisting Luke Shaw's blood if if and if Tellers hasn't played yet. Um yeah, I think this is gonna be Newcastle two, Manchester one. Manchester easy one. to imagine. Uh easy to imagine. I also I, I think it's gonna be two two. I think that Ars uh, Man U, you know, for all of their defensive frailties, they do have quite a lot of firepower firepower up front and Newcastle will concede two as well. Yeah, I, I can see either one of those to be honest. I, I just I can see this being sort of Newcastle deciding which side of the coin they want to be on this season, and I think they're gonna they're gonna get a good result here um, with with two one for me. But I guess, uh, um, moving... one thing that we maybe have overlooked is that probably a lot of the Newcastle squad won't have gone away for international break compared to Manchester United squad, and you know that kind of form might well play out in terms of coming back from the international break. Yep, form's going to be super important, as is morale. And I just think if you're looking at the dressing rooms of either club right now, who's got big smiles on their face before the game and who's sort of miserable and trudging around, it's probably yeah, Newcastle, sure. you know. So, <laughs> uh, speaking of clubs that are probably trudging around without a smile on their face, uh, Sheffield United and Fulham, this miserable pair, take each other on. Yeah, that's, this is not going to be a happy game. Um, uh, I mean, 1-0 Sheffield is my prediction. Yeah, I think that's that's the the smart play to go for. I think Fulham have just really not looked like anywhere near the level this season. Sheffield have also had trouble. I actually am going to go for a one-one here. I think that the two are sort of going to be desperate yeah. for points. Neither are particularly convincing for me. I think it's going to be a one-one. Not that exciting, but given the way this season has gone, it's probably going to be six-four. <laughs> that's true. We don't always get it right uh, here, yeah. at armchair analysts. Um... Well, especially not this season. <laughs> Yeah, it's tough, man. It's so hard to predict these things sometimes. I definitely think also, you know, one thing we shouldn't overlook is that Fulham and Sheffield know each other pretty well. They were mm. in the championship together three three years ago and, you know, they will understand each other as clubs. You know, Sheffield, for example, haven't really progressed as we've talked about um, and in many ways are kind of still fielding a lot of the same players as they would have done against Fulham mm. in the championship. So... Fulham yeah. could well have the measure of them, um, and I hope for their sake they get something out of it because they need to stop this. Uh, if they don't get points here, it's, it's not. Otherwise, not a good they uh, West Brom Burnley, I think, is going to be the time in the season when West Brom maybe show a little bit of brightness. If they can keep a clean sheet at all this season, it'll be against a Burnley side that haven't really looked that threatening. I think it's West Brom 1, Burnley 0. I'm going to go 2-1. 2-1. Okay, that's interesting. I think that's definitely in line with, you know, the, the large amount of goals. 2-1 to West Brom, I'm assuming. It is 2-1 to West Brom, in my opinion. Interesting, interesting. Um, Man City-Arsenal, I think, is 
probably going to be a pretty significant Man City win. Uh, Arsenal are already going to be missing Kieran Tierney, who's one of the most important players in their eleven because of the whole coronavirus issue with his international break. Uh, and even when he is playing, I think Man City have got too much for Arsenal. Thomas Partey could play. Even if he does, it's going to be his first game. He's not going to have had much time to train with them. I don't see him making a huge amount of difference in his first game. I think it's going to be Man City 3, Arsenal 0. Yeah, it's, this is a tricky one because while Thomas Partey could play, and I think that would have a big impact on you know, the defensive solidity of Arsenal as a side, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang has also sprained his ankle and might not play. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's a really tricky one to, to guess just because, you know, that... It could be a very different Arsenal lineup. Um, I'm going to go big because that's what I'm feeling like. Five-two to Man City. Wow, that'll be wow. I mean, that that could also happen this season. Um, it'll be interesting. Certainly, more than a three-nil if that does happen. But we will see. Uh, next, we have got Crystal Palace Brighton. Uh, I think that uh, I've pontificated for hours and hours on uh, the mental fragility of Crystal Palace uh, coming off the back of a 4-0 loss. I think that Brighton, who are a form team and have been enjoying form recently, are going to take this 2-1 away. Oh, wow, okay. Um, I'm going to go 1-1. Okay, yeah, fair enough. I I can see either of that. They're both pretty close scores. Uh, Spurs and West Ham. West Ham, as any West Ham fan will tell you, no matter what the score has been or is, um, are, are a traditional bogey team for Spurs. They sure uh, I, I do think that is true. Um, but uh, they often give Spurs a quite difficult game. Spurs have been up and down this season. They've been looking stronger sometimes than they usually do. So I think they eke this one 2-1. I'm going 1-0 West Ham. 1-0 West Ham. I've got to oh, back the bogey. You can back the bogey. Fair enough. It's, it's not a bad decision. Uh, and then finishing off, we have Leeds versus Wolves. Two sides. Um, or, or Wolves are sort of like... Or Leeds, rather, are sort of going up to Wolves now, and they're like, look at me, look at me. I am the, the unsung hero now. Because they've sort of, like, taken Wolves' place as, like, this, not necessarily sturdy, yeah, the lovable, like, The lovable bandits. The lovable, like, stepchild of the top six. Like, the plus one that everyone likes to root for. Um, and Wolves are probably like, you've stolen our brand and our magic. Uh, and I think this game is... Wolves are going to get Wolves, basically, and Leeds are going to beat them 1-0. 1-0? Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to go 2-1. 2-1 to yeah. no, okay. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, so I think that is our games for next week. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the international break has affected different teams. You mentioned there with Newcastle and Man United that maybe the teams that haven't had as many players on duty are going to be a bit more fresh, or maybe it'll work the other way and they'll be a little bit more you know, rigid. Obviously, a lot of them have played friendlies, but that's different from playing a competitive game, if we can call those competitive games. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. Rupert, great to talk to you as always. Cameron, thank you very much, and thank you to everyone for listening. Catch you Cheers, next guys. Time. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.